you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We want to make sure that you do. And if you do have a Bible, as a matter of fact, would you just let me see it? Bible's up. Let's see uh, the Word. Hold it up if you've got it. All right. That's the way we like to see it. Good. Okay, if you don't have one, get your hand up. We will get one to you. You need to have your Bibles this morning. This is a big deal. (laughs) I am just loving what we're talking about. I'm fascinated. I'm intrigued. I am learning. And I pray the same for you. Leviticus chapter 23 is where we are. It's the third book in the Old Testament. The third book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We are at the end of Leviticus. In fact, Wednesday night, we're going to try. Is that me? Okay. Wow. I'll try not to move. Um, we're going to try and finish the book of Leviticus on Wednesday night. We're in chapter 25. There are 27 chapters. So just, if you just want to show up and see if I can get through three chapters in a night. Or you might be thinking, that might be a good one to miss, honey. He's going to be there like three hours. So. No, we're going, to, we're going to finish it up Wednesday night. We're going to uh, actually take a couple or three more Sundays on these major feasts. Because they're so significant. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4, says the following. It says, These are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. Again, we're studying through the seven major feasts of Israel. There are a lot of minor ones, a lot of smaller ones, but these are the major ones, and they're all talked about in Leviticus 23. The Lord talks several times in Scripture about these feasts, making sure that the children of Israel don't miss them. And as we go through these feasts of commemoration and anticipation, you may recall we've used those words every time, commemoration and anticipation. The feasts commemorate something great that's happened, something in the past or something in the previous year, but it also anticipates so much more. These feasts look forward to and signal Jesus in some very powerful ways. The word in verse 4, appointed, these are the appointed times of the Lord, also translated feasts, it's moada. Moada in the Hebrew, M-O-W, with a little apostrophe, A-D-A-H, if you're spelling it out in English. And it means feasts or appointed times, but as we've seen, the word also can mean appointed signs, or literally a signal. A signal. For these feasts signal the coming of Jesus. It's the perfect designation. They signal the grand scale plan of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul writes the following in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now these feasts we've talked about are divided into two subcategories. The four feasts that are in the springtime. All that were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So when the feasts were proclaimed, they were prophetic. For us, they would be historic. Because though they were prophecies, they were prophecies fulfilled. And we have seen these prophecies fulfilled. Let me review quickly, and you can help me with this. What these four feasts anticipated. The Feast of Passover. What did that anticipate? The Feast of Passover. Have you been here in the last couple of weeks? Were you with me? Rescue. Very good. And, and what does that 
that rescue scene in, what event happens? No, the Passover scene signals something. What did the Passover... Okay, turn back. <laughs> the Passover was a picture of the cross, the crucifixion. Alright, so repeat after me. The Passover symbolized the crucifixion. Get it? Got it? Got it. Good. Okay. The Passover anticipated the death of Jesus, the rescue, our rescue through his death. What about the I don't even know if we should go on. The feast The feast of unleavened bread. Removal. That's right. The removal of sin. Our removal from the world. Praise God. People are getting this. Our removal. But it anticipated gain his death and his burial. What's real interesting. I just don't have time to go there. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you. Some of you have heard of this thing that goes on during Passover. It's called the Afikoman. Are you familiar with the Afikoman? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that. Just a few. The Afikoman is a, a part of the Jewish festival, festival of Passover where they will take three pieces of unleavened bread. It's totally not. We're going to be here like two hours, but that's okay. It's three pieces of unleavened bread, and these three pieces are placed in a pillow with three different pockets, basically, or, or a, a pillowcase type thing, placed in there. And sometime during the meal, the middle piece is taken out and broken. Part of it is put back in, part of it is hidden. And it's amazing that this kind of has grown as a tradition in the festival of Passover, that the Jews look at this, and, and there's all kinds of speculation as to what that means, but the Afikoman is this amazing picture of the burial of Christ. The Christ, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son in the middle, this middle piece of unleavened bread taken out, broken as He was broken on the cross, and then hidden for a time. Until after the Passover... The way the festival will go for the Jewish people where the Afikoman then, the piece that's hidden, is found and brought back. A picture of the burial of Christ. So we have in the Feast of Passover the death of Jesus, our rescue, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, anticipated not only His death but His burial, and it's our removal or the removal of sin. The third one we looked at, the Feast of First Fruits. What did that anticipate? The resurrection. The feast of first fruits, that you will bring that first of your of your crops, the first fruits, and you will bring it as a wave offering before the Lord, and Christ is called the first fruits. And Paul says of all three of these, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? These Scriptures. These feasts. These things spoken of throughout the Old Testament. The scriptures as we look at the New Testament weren't even around so much when Paul wrote these words. These things were spoken of according to the scriptures. He died. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, Paul says again, according to the scriptures. These feasts of Israel, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. And last week we looked at the fourth feast, the fourth, fourth feast celebrated in the springtime, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Pentecost. And what exactly does that symbolize or anticipate? The coming of the Holy Spirit and the... Church, good, good. The church, that was the birth of the church, amazingly, on the very day of Pentecost. 
on the day of the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. Now, if you missed any of these, and I think a few of you may have, you may want to order them. <laughs> you can get them on CD, and we are going to have CDs. I know several of you keep asking, are we ever going to have CDs for the teachings? We are. We Right now, it's in the hands of Office Max. So if you happen to go to Office Max Oak Harbor, just walk up to the counter and go, hey, where are those CDs for the bridge? Because we're waiting on them. Okay? Just put a little pressure there. Now, this morning we're going to spring ahead. Those were the feasts of the spring. But now we're going to jump around the, around the horn of summer and come around to the fall. Three feasts in the fall. These three last feasts all signal Jesus' second coming. The feasts in the spring give us a fantastic prophetic picture of the coming of Christ the first time. But the last feasts, the feasts in the fall, signal His second coming. Now all three of these feasts cluster together in the month of Tishri. You may know this, but the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. We have a solar calendar, so we're slightly different. But in the lunar calendar, the month of Tishri is equivalent to our September-October time frame. And it kind of shifts around a little bit, but it's right there in the fall. And the three feasts we're going to look at are Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, because the fall feast so visibly re- uh, signal the return of Jesus, as you will see, a lot of prophecy buffs believe this is the very season that he will return. This is when he's going to come back. He'll come in the fall. Because the fall feasts of Israel are so anticipatory, so blatant in the way they portray his second coming, that's when he's going to come. September, October, somewhere around there. You might think, well, good, or not good. Depending on how you view things, you might say, well, we're about to winter now. December 21st on our solar calendar is, is winter time. So I guess he's not coming till next year. So we can kind of sit back, relax a little bit, not worry about it, live our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 44, For this reason you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. When you don't think... How many people think He's going to come this morning before I'm done with this message? Show of hands. Okay. <laughs> Guess what? You just up the chance. What? How long's your message? <laughs> How long's my message? A little bit longer now, Clark. Very few of you think he's going to come before I'm done with this message. <laughs> Which is great because you've just upped the chances that he will come before my message is done. Because he says he's coming at a time you don't think he will. So if you don't think he's coming this morning, oh, please, Lord, come this morning. I know some of you are saying, yes, please. And make it like in ten minutes. So, Gang, the Lord specifically avoided a definite time. There is nowhere in Scripture where he lays out and gives, here's when I'm coming, here's the date, here's the hour, here's when you need to plan. Why don't you do that, Lord? Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 42, be on the alert, for you don't know the day which your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. This is what God wants. A life lived in faith. A life lived that is on the alert. Not because we know when He's coming. So like a a test we can put off studying. We know it's going to be on a specific day. So we can just wait for it. So we can kind of count down the days. And as it gets closer, we'll clean up our lives a little more. No, Jesus says you live every day, every moment, as if the next moment I may be there. That's how I want you to live. Be on the alert. Father, we want to live on the alert. And so as we look at these these last three feasts this morning, we pray that you will open our eyes wider, that you will prepare our hearts, that you will cause us to enter into lifelong anticipation, that we will long for and herald the coming of Christ. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your scriptures. We pray that you'd open them up to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. On Wednesday, June 7, 1967, at the height of the Six-Day War, Israeli forces pushed into Jerusalem. They pushed up onto the Temple Mount, and for the first time in literally 1,897 years, the Jewish people's holiest site was once again in their possession, the Temple Mount. Soldiers were weeping on the Temple Mount this day. Battle-hardened Israeli soldiers who had fought and who had fought many wars prior to that are standing on the Temple Mount. They're hugging each other. They're weeping. Some are holding on to the stones of the Western Wall, thanking the Lord that they once again have possession of that which belonged to them from ancient times. And something happened. Something amazing. A rabbi by the name of Shlomo Gorin. There's a first name for you, Shlomo. (laughs) But a well-respected rabbi was up on the Temple Mount at that time. And he took hold of what is called the shofar, the ram's horn. And he blew the shofar. And with the blowing of the shofar, more people embraced. People were excited. They were energized. Because there was powerful meaning behind what this rabbi did. And the blowing of that shofar. By the way, the shofar is the same horn that is blown annually on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. But what was it that was so significant about the blowing of that horn on the Temple Mount? Let's look at this holy day to find out. Verse 23 of Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying on the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest. A reminder by blowing. Now most of your Bibles will add of trumpets, but the word of trumpets is not there. It's just a reminder by blowing. A holy convocation or calling out. You shall not do any laborious work, but shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish New Year. It's a relatively simple observance on the first day of the seventh month. Again, the month of Tishri. First day of the seventh month. Now, if you've been studying through with us, you know how significant the number seven is in the Bible. So if we come to the seventh month, you better believe something significant is going to happen. But it's interesting, this is rather simple. The Lord just basically says, blow a horn, have a holiday. That's it. You know, I thought Rosh Hashanah was a lot more. I know as a young kid, the, the, the Jewish children got to take the day off of school for Rosh Hashanah, and I didn't. And Jenna, I didn't think that was fair. I didn't think that was fair at all. Why did they get a day off? And so I thought, I assumed, I imagined in my mind, Rosh Hashanah, it must be some, some really deep, meaningful thing. And it's basically the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. Now, ancient rabbis believed that on the first of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, they believed that it coincided with the first day of creation when God said, let there be light. That there's significance right there. And as God began this world, created this world, so it's commemorated every first of Tishri with Rosh Hashanah. There's not much else really to it, however. Of the seven major feasts, it's the least involved, but it remains powerfully significant. Numbers chapter 29 verse 1 repeating this command says the following says now in the seventh month on the first day of the month you shall also have a holy convocation you shall do no laborious work it will be to you a day a day for the blowing of trumpets a day for blowing trumpets now the priests blew trumpets all the time 
I don't know if you're aware of this. We're going to see this in the book of Numbers. And by the way, when we get to Revelation chapter 11 someday, if the Lord wills, we'll get there. But there are two trumpets that are prescribed for Israel. Two silver trumpets. And these two silver trumpets are blown on the first day of every month of the Jewish calendar. First day of every month, the two silver trumpets are blown, except for on Rosh Hashanah. Now it's the shofar. It's not two silver trumpets, and the significance of those we'll see as, as we get into numbers. But it was just the ram's horn, the shofar. What is the blowing of the shofar all about? What does it commemorate? Is it just the Lord's way of saying, shofar, so good? Is this about? It's just too good a pun. You can't... I mean, how many of you were thinking that anyway? You know, so far. So far, we're not very far into the study, Rick. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It's also called the Day of, listen to this, Remembrance or, or the Day of Judgment. Now, we immediately go, oh, Judgment Day. No, that's not what they're thinking. The Day of Judgment, the day when it is recognized that the Lord is judge, is king over all the earth. Turn in your Bibles quickly to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. A passage that is often traditionally read seven times on the day of Rosh Hashanah, before the blowing of the shofar. Psalm 47, beginning in verse 1. Again, this will be read through seven times before the shofar was blown, before that ram's horn was blown. I'll read it to you. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over all the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. It would be read again, and again, and again, seven times, and then the shofar blown on Rosh Hashanah, ringing in the new year with the reminder, the commemoration, if you will, that God is king, and God is judge, that he subdues, that he chooses, that he shields, that he reigns. Now, today, Jewish people will say in greeting to one another, may God inscribe you and your loved ones for a healthy and happy new year. May God inscribe you. For God is the God who is in control. He is the one who brings the healthy new year, the happy new year. And again, again, remember, Rosh Hashanah is a reminder. A reminder by blowing. What does it remind the Jewish people of? First of all, number one, Rosh Hashanah reminds Israel that their lives are in God's hands. Their lives are in God's hands. Isaiah 49 verse 13 says, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. As a matter of fact, many Jewish people today would say the very same thing. The Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. 
Something that has been pervasive, especially in secular Judaism, is the belief that maybe God has even ceased to exist. Because He's so silent. Because He's so quiet. Because the Jewish people, as a people in the world, still tend to be under the gun consistently. Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt that way? Any of you in your lives felt like, God has no idea what's going on in my life. For if He did, He would not allow this to happen. God has forsaken me. Listen to God's response. Isaiah 49 verse 15, He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. But I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. It amazes me that after all this time, the western wall, by the way, in Jerusalem still stands. And the Lord says, your walls are continually before me. And the fact that He inscribes our names, He has inscribed Israel, I believe He has inscribed all people on the palms of His hands. God is only as far away from you as His eyesight to His own hand where your name resides. By the way, your name, if it is in fact inscribed on the hand of God, would be inscribed right next to a print of a nail. God has not forgotten you. And every year as that shofar is blown for the faithful of Israel, they would say, He has not forgotten us. The the horn reminds us our lives are in His hands. It's a reminder by blowing that we are still the people of God. That He still has a plan for us. That there is still a purpose for Israel and their existence. But gang, the wonder of prophecy fulfilled, as we've seen in the previous feast, is it serves as a reminder that God does not forget. When He says something, He does it. When he inscribes it, he follows through. Rosh Hashanah also anticipates not just a happy new year, not just that their lives are in God's hands, but it reminds Israel of God's covenant promises. The Bible promises that God will one day restore the land completely to Israel. Not a constant giving up of land, as we just saw happen with the Gaza Strip. As Israel gave up, again, more land to try to appease. And we'll talk about this tonight in the Revelation study. But gang, the appeasement has not worked. Ariel Sharon, who was the darling leader of the world for a few days after giving up Gaza, is no longer so. Barely hanging on to his his, uh, prime ministership, if you can call it that. Barely keeping his position and the world bearing down on Israel once again to give up land. But the Lord... The Lord promised that they would be restored to the land and not just to a little cubby hole in the Middle East. Not just to a little tiny spot. As a matter of fact, some of you prophecy students understand this, you know this, Israel has never held all of the land that the Lord promised they would hold. Never. At the height of Solomon's kingdom, Israel sat on about 30,000 square miles. I believe that number is correct. But God said, I'm giving you 300,000 square miles in the Middle East, and they have never held all of that land. God promised this, by the way, in an unconditional, one-way covenant with Israel, not based on what they would do. He promised, you will have this, and they never have. Uh Uh-oh. Does God keep His promises? Has He failed in this covenant? 
Or is there more to come? I think you know where I stand on that. There is more to come. A full restoration that has been promised to Israel and is tied, by the way, to the blowing of a trumpet, to the sounding of a horn. Isaiah 27, verse 13. says, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain. Literally, gang, that would be on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, a place where no Jew is allowed to go right now. Back to the Six-Day War, it's amazing, it's almost incomprehensible what happened. They stormed the Temple Mount and held the Temple Mount, had complete control over the Temple Mount. And the politics of it were all set aside for that day, that wonderful day. The Jewish people had their holy place again. And so Rabbi Gorin blows the shofar, the, the soldiers are weeping. And the intent, the idea behind the blowing of the shofar, and the reason why it was so emotional is because Rabbi Gorham was signaling, was saying that this is the return that was promised. We now have the Temple Mount again. Israel is now ours again. This is the glorious return. And as he blew that horn, those who were familiar with what was going on wept in grateful thanksgiving that they stood there again on the Temple Mount until something Again, incredible happened. A famous one-eyed general of Israel named Moshe Dayan. He gave control of the Temple Mount back to the Muslim clerics. To the day of his death in 1981, he could never fully explain why he did it. Although there, there were those who said he was more secular in his approach to life. And so General Dayan really didn't believe in, in the, the religious aspect of things. He just wanted peace, and so he did it kind of to appease the Muslim uh, clerics who were at the Temple Mount at the time, and so he gave control back to them. And you might ask again, why would he do such a thing? Why would a general of Israel, a Jew who had stormed that Temple Mount again, why would he give it up? The holiest side of all Israel. Well, he couldn't explain it, but the Bible explains it perfectly. The Bible expresses and shows us how. Let me tell you something else here. In March 1983, a physicist, a Jewish physicist by the name of Asher Kaufman, Dr. Asher Kaufman, wrote a landmark article that was published in Biblical Archaeology Review. After 16 years of study, Kaufman, who was not an Orthodox Jew, but he made a huge discovery about the Temple Mount. Now even today, people will look at the Temple Mount and they'll see that Dome of the Rock mosque belonging to Islam. Sitting right there on the Temple Mount and they'll say, well, the only way you could ever have a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount again is if that's destroyed. And if that happened, you know, that'd be World War III in the Middle East. Well, that's, that's perceptive. But the Bible tells us something amazing. I'll tell you in just a moment. Do- Dr. Asher Kaufman made this discovery. He showed, he showed that the holy place the Holy of Holies in the temple had to be located a hundred meters north of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Today, if you go into the Dome of the Rock, and as it was constructed, it was constructed over this, this bedrock that people believe was at the base of the original temple. It was right there. But that bedrock is craggy and rounded and would not hold something as precious as the Ark of the Covenant. It would have to be a smooth, flat stone. There is 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock, a little cupola that the Muslim people have put up. It's over a very smooth, flat stone. 
And it's this place that Dr. Kaufman believed and showed with various other proofs. It's this place that was the place of the original temple. Well, what does that mean, Rick? I mean, how does that have anything to do with Rosh Hashanah? I'll get back to that in just a second. But I want you to understand this. Without touching the Dome of the Rock Mosque, a Jewish temple can, and I believe will, be built again to specification. What kind of specification? Well, there's one little caveat. Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. John is told to measure the temple. In Revelation 11, he said, the angel tells John, go, I want you to measure the outside of the temple, measure the courts. But the following is told to John in Revelation 11, 2, leave out, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Which is amazing. Because almost 30 years after the Jewish temple was destroyed in AD 70, John, caught up in a vision of things future, tells us that the temple would stand again in Jerusalem, but this time, this time, without the court of the Gentiles. Without the outer court. It would just be the interior part of the temple. The court of the Gentiles would not stand. Why not? Why not? Well, if the Dome of the Rock Mosque is there, there wouldn't be room for it there's precisely enough room to rebuild the temple next to the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And you're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. On the Temple Mount, you're talking about a, a Muslim mosque and a Jewish temple side by side? That's impossible. Well, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now listen to this. Back to the Six-Day War, General Moshe Dayan, he storms the Temple Mount. He wrests control back into the hands of Israel. Rabbi Gordon blows the shofar. A new day is dawned for Israel. Truly a new year. And then General Dayan gives control of the Temple Mount back to the Muslims. Why? Because that's the way God said it would be. It's exactly what God foretold would happen. What are you talking about, Rick? Ezekiel chapter 42. Ezekiel chapter 42 verse 20 Ezekiel has been told to measure the temple and as you know as we study scriptures the thing in the scriptures they're not just random God just wasn't bored one afternoon and talking to the prophet Ezekiel said oh I'm going to give you a vision of the temple and I want you to measure it give you something to do (laughs) it's for a reason listen to this Ezekiel 42 verse 20 he measured it on the four sides and it had a wall all around the length 500 and the width 500 but the wall listen to this to divide to divide between the holy and the profane Ezekiel is prophesying a temple a Jewish temple that will be rebuilt that will stand but it will now have a wall around it what's the wall for? to divide between the holy that is the temple of God and the profane what's the profane? I think it's the dome of the rock I believe it is the Dome of the Rock Mosque that is referred to as the profane. Now you may say that's completely unfair of me to emphatically say that the temple will be built next to the dome. First of all, because you're calling the Dome of the Rock profane. Well, the scriptures said there's going to be something profane right there. And if you look at the Dome of the Rock Mosque today, there are profane things written on it about the Lord God. It is profane. As a matter of fact, and let me be clear about this, God would call anything profane that would take somebody from Him and cast them away. Again, you might say, well, it's not fair of you to say emphatically that the temple is going to be built again next to the Dome of the Rock. And I'll say, you're right, it's not completely fair because I can't prove it. Why can't you prove it, Rick? Because I'm not going to be here when it happens. 
what in the world do you mean by that? Back to Rosh Hashanah. It commemorates the new year. It anticipates Israel's full and as yet unrealized return to their land. But it also anticipates, gang, something else. This simple holiday, gather, blow a horn, have a day of rest, it celebrates and centers around one thing, and that's the blowing of a trumpet. The blowing of a trumpet. What does that make you think of? Let me just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up, will remain and, and will caught... Let me, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Rosh Hashanah pictures that wonderful time of the catching up. The word is harpazo in the Greek. You've heard me use it a million times. The buzzword is the rapture. Call it what you want. The translation of the church as we go to meet the Lord in the air. Now, hang on to your yarmulkes. We're not quite done yet. Verse 26 of Leviticus 23. Verse 26. You're going to do all three feasts today? I... We'll see. Probably not. Verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Exactly on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on the same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls. On the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. The second one, Rosh Hashanah is on the first Tishri. On the 10th of Tishri, now we come to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now we've talked about this recently, but the 10-day period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is also called in Hebrew, Yomim Noraim, or the Awesome Day. Because in that time, after the blowing of that trumpet, after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish people begin to reconcile with those they are not reconciled with. They begin to look at this as a time of repentance, a time when literally accounts for more during these 10 days leading up to the Day of Atonement, getting ready for it, preparing for God to provide the ultimate atonement. Those 10 days are spent in a time that is very solemn of repentance and confession. We've studied the Day of Atonement, in fact, rather recently. This one festival was the most sober, the most serious of the Jewish festivals. It was the holiest day of all the year. On that day, you may recall, the high priest removed his priestly garments. He stripped down to the plain white linen clothing of the common priest. It was on that day when he entered into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which sat atop the Ark of the Covenant. And then there were two goats that were offered on that day. You remember, one was sacrificed, the other one was called the scapegoat. Good. The scapegoat. The sacrificed goat was, was, you know, was sacrificed, the scapegoat driven out alive. A picture we've said in the past, an amazing picture of both aspects of Christ, the crucified Christ, but also who came back alive. Seen in these two different goats. 
But you might say, well, Rick, that happened at the first coming of Christ. And I thought you said the fall feast represented the second coming of Christ. Listen closely. If you've gone away, come back. This is incredibly important to understand. Stay with me. On Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we're told the people afflict their souls. The people of Israel recognize their sins. They realize their need for atonement. And verse 27, verse 27 says the following, It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble, you may want to circle that in your Bibles, humble your souls, and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall humble your souls. Again in verse 29, he says, Anyone who does not humble himself on the day will be cut off. Now pay close attention. The word humble is anah in the Hebrew, and it literally means self-abasement. It means browbeating. It means affliction. You shall afflict your souls. Yom Kippur is a time of affliction. Yes, it's the day of atonement, but anticipating a time of affliction. Now listen, after the day when the trumpet sounds, after the church is caught up and taken away, the Bible declares something will happen to the nation of Israel and that something is affliction. Affliction. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for that great day is near. There's none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or affliction. (laughs) He will be saved from it. That day of Jacob's distress. Wait a minute, Rick. I thought that happened back in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. It was a time of great affliction for the Jewish people. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But listen again to what Jeremiah said. There is none like it. The day is great. There is none like it. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 24, verse 21. There will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. Listen, nor ever will. Nor ever will. So what are you saying, Rick? The destruction of the temple in AD 70 was horrific. It was terrible. It was a massacre, a slaughter of Jewish people. But has there not been a time like it since then? In our time, the time we call the Holocaust, which in terms of numbers and death far surpasses Gang, it's not just what was done to the Jewish people, it's what happens in the heart of the Jewish people. Whereas in the day of Yom Kippur, they will not only be afflicted, they will not only experience great tribulation, but gang, something will happen in the heart and soul of Israel. What do you mean? Let me read this to you, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. I encourage you to jot all these verses down, you can go back and reread them. Zechariah 12.2 says the following, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And is not Jerusalem the cup that causes reeling? Reeling as in drunkenness. People don't know what to do with it. They stammer around. They stagger when they try to deal with Jerusalem. Every U.S. president that has ever tried to deal with Jerusalem has ended up drunk, not in a good way but really unable to handle what is truly going on there? And the Lord said, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling. But listen to this, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Why? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. They will mourn for him. 
as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. The people will afflict their own souls when they recognize finally who Jesus really is. Mashiach, the Messiah. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 And one will say to him What are these wounds between your arms? And he will say Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends Now stick with me The people of Israel Seeing Jesus Are in a great mourning Afflicting their souls Just as on the day of atonement They will be afflicting their own souls As they recognize Jesus as Messiah But verse 29 of Leviticus chapter 23 God says, he declares If there is any person Who will not humble or afflict himself On this same day He shall be cut off from his people Zechariah 13 verse 8 It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my God and they will say... I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Listen, in the time of Jacob's affliction, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible tells us two-thirds of Jewish people alive at at that time, two-thirds will be cut off. But one-third of all Israel will come through the fire. And they will be saved. Which is why Paul says what he says in Romans chapter 11. He says something, gang, we have got to understand. If we miss this, we miss the fullness of the plan of God. If we don't get this, we go off on our happy, merry Christian way and we do not understand our roots. We do not understand the power of what God is truly doing, the complexity, the breadth of God's love for us. Listen to this. Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Uninformed of this mystery. Listen, Romans, the book of Romans is a fantastic book. And chapters 1 through 8, Paul lays out Christianity in the perfect way. If you want to understand Christianity, read Romans 1 through 8. He explains it. He, he shows what grace is, what mercy is. He explains faith and judgment. He explains how the law interacted and brought us to Christ. All of these things through the first eight chapters. And then suddenly in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, it is all about Israel. Why, Paul? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That's a great thing to have underlined in your Bible. I don't want you to be uninformed. Why? So you won't be a smarty pants. So that you won't think more highly of yourself than you ought. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And I would say, I would add to that, by the way, so that you will never become anti-Semitic. But he says the following. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved. I've always wondered about that verse. All Israel will be saved? What is that? It's got to be spiritualized. It can't be literal. Because you're already saying, Paul, that every single Jewish person alive at the time is just going to accept Jesus and be saved? Is that what you're talking about here? 
All Israel, he says, will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away this, their sins. Who is this all Israel that will be saved? Zechariah tells us it's those who make it through. Two-thirds are going to be cut off. But after those two-thirds are cut off, one-third will remain. And all of Israel that remains, all of that third, all of Israel alive at the time, will be saved. How will they be saved, Rick? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, exactly as you and I are saved. Can I be clear about this? That Jewish people are not saved because they're Jewish people. Any more than you can be saved just because you're a good person. Being Jewish or being good has nothing to do with salvation. Only the blood of Jesus poured out, only the grace of God given saves us. And so all Israel will be saved. Listen, there are those who believe that God is through with the Jew. He's done. They had their chance. They blew it. Messiah came. They didn't recognize Him, so He's done with them. And all the promises given to Israel now apply to the church. They get to keep the curses, but we'll take the promises. Let me say this very clearly. If that is the case, Isaiah and Zechariah, Daniel, Micah, many of the other prophets, and even Jesus would have to be liars. For that to be the case, something even worse, God doesn't keep His promises. If He has stripped Israel of the promises He made to them, and I'm not talking about the Mosaic Covenant. What do you mean by that, Rick? Well, God made a covenant with the people of Israel through Moses when He gave them the Ten Commandments. And that covenant, He said, if you keep these laws, I will bless you in these ways. But it's only one covenant. There were many covenants drawing back to the first one that he made with Abraham where he promised Abraham he was going to follow through and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. The Davidic covenant where he promised David Messiah will sit on your throne. I won't go into all of them, but but gang, (laughs) you're going, thank you. The covenants that God made are promises He made and there are some that are so absolutely specific to Israel that if He doesn't keep them, He doesn't keep His promises. And if God doesn't keep His promises, why do we think He's going to keep what He's promised us? Have we gotten so arrogant as Christians that we think, Oh, but we got got the blood of Christ on us. We're saved. We're good to go. Why are we good to go? Because God keeps His promises. Because God, when He guarantees something, says, I will follow through. Paul puts it this way, Romans 11.29, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And no human is going to change his mind on that. He keeps His promises. So Rosh Hashanah, the trumpet sounds and the church goes home. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement and affliction, Israel wakes up and sees and believes Jesus to be the Messiah. And then the last feast is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll have to deal with next week. But let me finish with this. The last couple of Sundays we've talked about many of the feasts of Israel, and we've ended each one with a love story. Two weeks ago we talked about the Song of Solomon and that picture of Jesus' love for the, for the bride, the beloved and the bride. And, and last week we ended with the story of Ruth. And the relationship she had with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then meeting Boaz and falling in love. And it's a fantastic little love story, a great book in the Old Testament. 
But gang, the greatest love story of all is right here. Right in what we're talking about. The love story in a God that loves His people so much that when He makes promises, He follows through. He doesn't forget. Remember, inscribed on the palms of His hand. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves God loves, He loves, He loves, and He does not love like we love. No, our God's love is faithful. We know something in our world about unfaithfulness, don't we? We're real good at unfaithfulness, but God is faithful. And though Israel, Israel on the whole rejected Christ at His first coming, God still remains faithful, even if they were unfaithful. And good news to you and I today, even if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And so Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God in love and faithfulness gang, He provides a way to extend His faithfulness and love to the whole world Jews and Gentiles alike and that way is Jesus Christ